0: real quick we are in the book of exodus we're going through that book as a local community um if you are new here we actually go through books of the bible that's what our desire is we see it as very important um practically also theologically to get the whole counsel of god's word if you need a bible just raise your hand that'd be great um yeah we are in exodus chapter 20 right now and actually um a couple of things I want to make sure we, we do. Uh, we're going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, Pastor Leon did a great job uh, really trying to prepare us uh, for understanding the importance of the law, of understanding the importance of, of God really setting the stage of what does it mean to be his people. And so here is God clearly giving us a clear understanding of what that means to be his people. What I don't want to do is as I read this, I don't want us to uh, look at this as just rules. I want you to see it as Yahweh himself expressing what does it mean to, to be his people, to, to please him, uh, to be friends with him. Uh, with that said, I would like for everybody to stand. And we'll start with verse 3 as um, Leon went through verses 1 and 2 yesterday of Chapter 20 reads, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your holy word, and we come here humbly asking you would speak to us. That you would allow this heat and this humidity not to affect your glory. Of you minister into the hearts of your people and change in the hearts of those who are your enemies we ask Lord that your, your truth would be just, a, just honey to our lips we would love it, we would want it we would not just want the information Lord but lead us toward worship and would you, would you speak through me Lord I humbly come before you and say I know I have pride I want to do well, I want people to like me I just pray you get rid of all that and it would really be a passion for your honor uh, that, that you would be exalted here. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Please receive seated, family. A um, couple ground rules. As you go through the Ten Commandments, okay, we, again, Leon prepared us, and now we're here hearing uh, what God is saying it means to walk with him. Uh, if we have time today, which I don't think we will, I think we'll. I think maybe next week, I want to teach us in a very easy fashion the Ten Commandments so that you know them, by the way. That's my little tidbit at the end, but and don't fake like you know them all. But um, So I, I look forward to teaching us that, um, that I learned in seminary, so not like I made it up, but my professor taught me a really cool way, so I'm going to pass that on. I want us to know a couple things before we enter into this discussion because uh, there, there are a lot of... Um, a lot of provisions here, a lot of statutes, a lot of what they call, you know, um, uh, imperatives, commands. That's what these are. Uh, I, be clear, they're, they're, they're commands, right? It, it can read, though, if you keep reading it, you can kind of read like a proverb, all right? And I want to make sure we don't do that because proverbs aren't commands, and so we'll mess things up. Right? Proverbs are wise and skillful living. And and Proverbs are one of those things where uh, it usually happens this way because this is what wisdom is. And every once in a while, an unwise person can skate out and not get, you know, messed up, right? So it's not a command in Proverbs. Um, Whereas these are commands. And the reason why I bring that up is because they'll kind of read like Proverbs and they act like Proverbs because to do God's commands actually are wise and skillful. Right. If you, if you obey God's Ten Commandments, even as an unbeliever, if God has given you the common grace to obey the Ten Commandments, you're going to probably have a cool life because this is how you function. This is, this is what it means to like, have community flourishing. This is what it means to like, see a society actually function in a healthy way. So, but I don't want us to think this is just about, this is not self-help. This isn't like, oh, how do I balance out my life? You know, give me some money, give me a car, give me a little Ten Commandments. That's not what we're doing. But these are commands, right? These, these, this is God saying, "This is what I'm telling you. You need to be about if you're talking about wanting to please me or know me." So I just want to make sure we, we got that right. He starts off, and again, if you uh, if you, you're on a moving train, if you just came here, please go back and go online and check out what we've talked about for the verse of the. Of 19 chapters and Pastor Leon, the verse two, uh, first two verses here. I think this can get kind of weirded out if you don't take Leon's talk because he sets the stage and that's why I can't go into those things. But so I just want to give me grace there. I'm just going to jump right in because there's a lot of information we have. First and foremost, he starts, you shall have no other gods before me, all right? So there's a lot of information. So make sure you take your notes, think through this stuff. Uh, the first thing is 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 powerful. God is talking to his people, and he starts things off by saying, you should have no other gods before me. And a couple things he's doing here. First, it's a clear cry to monotheism, right? He's making it really clear that there's no other competing gods. There's no other divinity, right? There's, there's no other person who has created people, right? There's no, there's, there's no one competing for the position of Israel's supreme God. He wants it to be very, he wants to be very clear to the Israelites and h- albeit the world as the Israelite goes out and proclaims his goodness that no, actually there is one God. But I love what he does because the way he positions it is just very confident. I love that Jesus, our Lord here, you know, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is not insecure. When you think of Psalm 82, uh, even John 10, you know, you'll see these guys talk about uh, gods in a small uh, g, And the reason why they do that is because basically the tenor here is that God wants to recognize that there are supernatural beings in the world. There's angels. And there are things in the world where uh, he wants to give a healthy recognition and placement to to things that are more powerful maybe than a human. So, So he even says here, no other gods before me. And the sense here is that, hey, two things. First, I am the only divine and although there's these other, other things that I want you to, to recognize who they are and what they're about, angels being a, little lower, being a little lower than us, but actually more powerful than us, recognizing these supernatural beings, I want you to understand there's only one Yahweh, and he alone is divine. So he sets the stage by, 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 by saying the reason why, as it were, I can give the rest of these commandments is because of the first commandment. I can talk about all these other things because, yes, I, I'm the only God. And because of that, I'm going to call the shots. And here's what I have to say. So he starts out by saying, I'm the supreme being. Verse 4, the whole concept of no idols. says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So it's kind of a cousin to the first, right? And what he's doing here, he's kind of outlawing all idolatry, right? Because he used these two words, right? He uses uh, the word idol, these two common words in the Hebrew, idol. And he uses this word like likeness, right? And now to explain idol, as it were, and this is difficult because, you know, we have to bring this now to our day and age. Because basically in that day and age, um, it, was, it was more in the sense of, of of, of, of talking about it It wasn't just uh, You know Some little tinky thing That was made But it was actually Those things were representative in an antiquity of, of a certain whole lifestyle choice a whole, a whole framework of living Right So that's why I was It was very important For God to talk about this Not being um, important Being important to To, uh, to disband these things Because He's saying the things That they worshiped back then Actually went counter To God's culture To what God wanted to be about So it wasn't just about Liking something that was that was man-made, it was that you actually put your hope and your trust and your confidence in this. Now we don't make little things, as it were. Now and we don't have little trinkets hi- hiding in bags and in our homes, or at least I hope you don't. But um, but I so what I want to do now is kind of take what what was um actually given in the in the early centuries and share exactly probably a, a definition that will fit us today. What is an idol? What is an idol, Eric? An idol, if you're wondering, if you if you worship idols, is something when you find your hope or trust in. Right? Um, or it has your heart and mind. So you either find your hope or trust in it, or it has your heart and mind. It has your affection more than Jesus. And this is shown in our day and age, this is shown through identity and lifestyle. Right? So, if something has grabbed you to the point where it literally affects who you are, it's, it's who you identify yourself with, and it's counter to what God has said who you are, that's an idol. Right? Does that make sense? Or if your lifestyle is showing through how you do your life, right? So, you, you know, you have a very materialistic person. I don't have any idols, like I'm not worshiping anything, I go to church, but you look at the lifestyle and everything is girded around your resources, right? And all your focus in life is your stuff. I want to propose actually you do have an idol. Whatever has your affection has you, right? Right? And, this is, and what he does here is he, he makes a band of that. He's saying there's no exceptions, no idols. And so this is why when we have the talks in even 2 Corinthians 12, where we talked about someone who, who's addicted to, to, to sex, right? You have a fornicator who finds his, his trust, his, his identity as it were. He might not find his trust in it, but his identity. What has shaped him is that a person has to go out and, and go and sleep with as many women as they need to, as they can, right. As it were, that's an idol. You flip the script. You have a person who says, well, well, why is that an idol? Because you look at what the Bible says, and the Bible says we don't, we don't do that. We don't fornicate. In the same way, you look at an individual who wants to practice homosexual relationships. In the same way, you look at that, and you see their identity and their focus. This is who I am, and if it's counter to scriptures, as it were, it's an idol, that makes sense? He says, we're totally disbanding that. And he's serious about it because idols, idols in antiquity and even today, what they do is they have an opportunity to actually corrupt society and generations. That's what idols do. Why? Because they get you away from being about what God wants you to be about. And when you get a society saying, I want to be about myself or whatever my identity is, outside of God, actually, the, 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 that community, as it were, begins to crumble. And we're actually seeing it right now in our day and age, in our own culture. And so, there's a big seriousness about successive generations being cared for. So God says, no idols. Do not bow down to them. So he continues on. Uh, I would saying twenty-five, like twenty, like five, and then the B side of the verse. It says, "For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Here's the why: visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this can be kind of misunderstood. Right? Because have you heard it said before when you hear this kind of sense of generational curse? Have you ever heard that? Right? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach that a little bit. There's two, I think there's two misunderstandings that can come out of this verse here. First, when God says this, we can think, okay, well, uh, does God, is God saying that he, he, he punishes, right, uh, those individuals who, whose family might have had a graven sin, and because there's that sin you know what, that generation after generation might deal with that sin. And I've heard, I've heard this talk, that if, 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 my, if, if there's a sin of alcoholism in my family, man, there might be a curse, and if I'm an alcoholic later, I have somebody come up to me and say, man, you know what, we gotta get rid of that, that curse of alcoholism in your family, right? And it's gonna go to the second and third generation. You guys have never heard that? This this sense of like, oh my goodness, the sins of my fathers and my mothers can fall upon me and my brothers and sisters and for, for successive generations, right? Well, that, that seems problematic when you look at Deuteronomy 24, and I think that seems problematic because of what the gospel is. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. But he says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers, each is to die for his own sin. You see that? So I want to I dispel that, that reality that God is actually looking at people and going, because your daddy, you know, was an alcoholic or beat your mom, you're going to beat your mom. I mean, I'm sorry, beat, beat your kid. You're going you're gonna to beat, your, beat your wife because, because your dad beat his wife. I want to dispel that. Here's why that's dangerous. Because curses, when you think of curses from that standpoint, what they do is that absolves you from any responsibility. Do you understand that? So I want, to, I want today, I want you to have, if you've been thinking that or having that or having that talk to you, I want to dispel that because that doesn't make you responsible because now you're going, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm not a jerk because of me, I'm a jerk because of my daddy, right? No, if you are beating your wife, you're just a jerk because you're a jerk. And now don't get me wrong, now don't get me wrong, there's influences, right, like I'm, I have a higher percentage capacity to beat my wife because my dad abused my, my, my mom, right? But, this, right, and so you have alcoholism or, or you grew up with a grumpy dad or name your baggage because we all got all kinds of crazy wounds and now you this person because of your broken parents, right? God says that's real, but what's also more real is the gospel. And what God does is he cleanses you and gives you an awareness of responsibility, and says, hey, I know you might have more propensity to drink, but guess what? In the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be a drunk. See, that's responsibility. So when you get the individual, we get hard cases, guys, and I don't wanna make light of any of our struggles. You hear me? I don't wanna make light of them, but when I get a young man, and I've seen it many times, I'll get young men who've who've had sexual abuse and they, they struggle with same gender attraction, right? And that, that tension is, I, th- that journey, I want to be super compassionate about, but I also have to encourage them that now, as a 30-year-old adult, they can't brain their uncle anymore. Does that make sense? Although it's still a reality. The other flaw is that we can say, well, God won't punish this generation for what they're doing to break his covenant. Because, after all, they merely learned it from their parents, <laughs> right? So we can have either spectrum. We have individuals saying, you're going to be cursed, sorry, this is who you're going to be. And then we have another, another side that says, actually, you know what, you're going to get, you're going to get a pass because you had such a jacked up family, and well, you're, you're supposed to be a, a liar and a cheat. I mean, you, you have generations and generations of that. But God in both, I want to propose to us, is neither allows us to assume responsibility. And the clarity here is that God is actually saying, no, I'm, he's not in, I'm not endorsing doctrine of curses, nor being accountability light. But God wants us all to deal with our sin. Right? He wants us all to deal with our sin. And look what he does here. He wants us to deal with our sin. And then I love he focused on a contrast of where his heart truly is. Look at the end of the verse there. He says, "I'm visiting. so visiting the iniquity of the fathers, when he uses this word hate, is just those who are not loyal to me. And visiting the iniquities, he's saying, man, if someone's sinning just like their daddy, I'm going to punish them just like their daddy. And then he says at the end, though, but look at my heart, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I love that. He's saying, you know what, but my heart is not to be punishing folk. Not to be punishing my children, but my heart is covenant loyalty. Is that, is that as I'm showing you right now, I want to be loyal to you, and if you're loyal to me, we're going to have this beautiful blessing. I'm going to be able to bless you, and you're going to be honoring me, and I'm going to be blessing you, and you're going to be honoring me, and that's the, that's the, that's the narrative that I want for you as my people. Covenant loyalty. And I love how he says that. Showing that steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we have one God and no idols. Right? And then the Lord tells us in verse 7, He tells us to, to respect His name. Respect God's name, right? Verse 7, He says, You shall take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. And he, already He's given a, a pro, the second proposition, right? Uh, that he's, he's, he's like, He gives a threat. <laughs> Um, based on like, hey, if you don't do this Here's the punishment But it's interesting, I love the fact That in the punishment He doesn't tell you what he'll do He kind of leaves it to our imagination so, so God gets the freedom In this scenario to punish us However he wants, but he's making it clear That when we take God's name in vain That there is a, there is a, a penalty of that Now what does it mean um, To take God's name in vain Let's answer some questions real quick You've heard that a lot, what does that mean to take God's name in vain uh, how are we misusing his name? Why is, why is his name so important, right? That's uh, protecting it is one of the 10 foundational commandments. That's, that's interesting, right? And then the question you got to ask yourself is what kind of punishment uh, might ensue from breaking this command? Well, taking God's name in, in, in vain, I love this. It literally means raising up Yahweh's name for no good, right raising up yahweh's name for no good it's it's bringing god up and the term is, is is actually um was more of a term uh worded within in in a in a lawyer sense right with testimony and so bringing up god's name to to affirm your own testimony is what was happening in antiquity and so so god so i would say so how do how does this fit in today i would say it's uh, making light of his name, uh, overtly mocking God's name, uh, speaking about his name disrespectfully, uh, these are all fall in light of, of that reality. But it begins with taking, including, a promising someone something by Yahweh. And so you see this a lot in scriptures, and, and this is what Jesus talks about when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you be condemned. This is, this is him that is, is expositing this commandment. He's saying that Christians, this is the reason why, and you, some of us have done this. I think this happens a lot in our community where I hear people say like, oh my God, or something like that, or, 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 uh, uh, you know, or even I, I, I swear to God, right? Or we'll, we'll say those kind of things. Right? And, and, and God's point, Jesus' point is, is this simple, is that Christians serve a living God. You have godly character, which means you don't have to promise on God, right? You don't have to, because you have godly character, you don't have to go swear by something. God is assuming as a believer, when you say something, you're going to do it, right? So it's really plain. It's in the sense that that's the reason we don't have to do that, because when I say something as a believer, it should happen. So I don't have to swear, as it were, by any other name. Does that make sense? So, why, why is it his name so important? Well, um, names, and we get this, they signify essence, right? The character of a person, uh, who they are, and, and in doing so, basically they connote their value, their worth, um, and so when we are taking God's name and doing whatever we want with it, what we're saying is we're denigrating his value. So. And as far as the punishment, it seems it's remain unspecified, but we have this sense of whole guiltless connoting, uh, connotes letting someone that he's not going to let someone or us get away with what we're doing uh, with God's name. So God begins with, there's, there's one God, there's no idols, that we respect his name, and so far we've seen that he's kind of framed everything about who he is, what does it mean to, to basically protect his name and understand who he are as far as his character. And then the next commandment, when, he's, when he starts talking about Sabbath, it's interesting, the Sabbath is almost a break in the passage because what he's doing is, is in, in, in covenantal laws and in the history, what you'll see is when God gives people functions to, to adhere to, he tries to give a sign, like for example, the Mosaic covenant, he tries to give a sign so people can remember it. And I want to propose that the Sabbath is actually that sign, is that, is that whenever we're taking the Sabbath rest, we, we get to remember like, that God's framework of who, what it means to love him, what it means to serve him. We get to remember God's laws. And so the Sabbath is almost like that, 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 that touch, that, that, that concrete thing that's happening in our week where we can go, oh yeah, God gave us this framework of what does it mean to serve him. And he says in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you, shall do, you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now this is interesting. Sabbath means stopping, right? Stopping or sensation. Um, and what it means by that is, is basically you're stopping, you have uh, this regular work week, and basically, God is saying he wants us to cease uh, for to giving people, basically, he wants people to cease their work, giving them a labor, a day of rest, uh, and it's in this heightened sense of being, being able to focus on God, which obviously periodically happens weekly here because of Sabbath. Now, there's a couple of things I want to bring up. Notice the commandment specifically prohibits um, any Sabbath day shifting for you to shift duties to, to a lower underling. You notice that? Notice that he says in the end there, he says, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner. So what he's saying there is that, hey, what a person might do if you're wealthy or you have some of these people is you'll say, okay, God, I'll take a Sabbath, but I still need to get this stuff done. So hey, son, do this work. Or, hey, servant, you do—so then basically you just kind of outsource everything you would have done to the other people, but God wants to show us that it's so important for our culture, and it's so important for everybody to get this time of rest. Now, the question is why? Because a lot of times, maybe we think that what God wants us to do is just kind of cease from working, but that seems very interesting that that's different than the model that God gives us. Why? Because God Himself did not rest because He was tired, right? So that doesn't make that doesn't make a lot of sense. I want to propose to you that Sabbath rest, as when we think about it, as in, "Oh, I'm tired. I'm so glad I get a day to hang out," right? I want to propose that is kind of um, that's kind of residual. I want to I want to propose that God's focus wasn't that you get to now not work. I want to propose the focus of Sabbath rest is to center yourself in worshiping God. Let me try to prove it. So he continues on. He says in verse, in, um, in verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right? So first, the model. He says... Rest, And here's why. And he gives himself as the model, which is interesting because you, you can hardly be, a, you have a stronger model for keeping the Sabbath other than God, right? Right? He's like, well, let me tell you why you should do it. Because I did it, right? So, he so you're going, well, what did God do? And so, you see that in an in in account in Genesis chapter one. So, make sure you circle that and, and, and check out that model and notice his, his, his model is one where he doesn't, he doesn't wear himself out. So a person like me who's type in, I want to work hard, I can kind of think that, okay, Sabbath's for people who just get too tired and they just need some rest. But maybe I don't need that because I like to keep busting it out. And I'm... But it seems like this is for everybody. And so this is not about just, take this, just, just taking a day off for the week, but it's a stoppage for everybody. Here's the reason why Sabbath is so important. Because the Sabbath is designed to help people grow spiritually stronger and closer to God. That's the whole point of Sabbath, rest. Is that God wants you and I to understand that throughout our whole days we are worshiping God, but he wants you to take a special day where you say, I wanna really retune and I wanna spend my focus on God. Now what's important about that is is your your understanding of retooling and, 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 and worshiping God, some people it can be meditation some people can actually be serving at a soup kitchen. So I would propose to you, that's why it blows out of proportion, it blows us out of water of what it means to have Sabbath rest. Because if Sabbath rest is really re-entooling and and re-encouraging and and rebuilding a passion for God and His glory, then that's going to be looking very different for people, right? And it might even look like work for some people. You understand? But the goal is to be challenging and growing yourself in Christ. So so to love God is is not to have a lazy day one day a week, right? That's, That's not the point of Sabbath, fam. And that's why I propose, even though I believe that theologically Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest, he tells us that, that the rhythm that God has placed before us I think it's think is is, is bigger than that reality. God is saying, hey, I want you to understand, you, you, you now do the work of faith, but this whole concept of taking time to pause for the greater good of exalting Christ seems to be more of a rhythm of having a healthy community. You follow me? Having a healthy community. And so at this point, what he's done, he's... Um, we, we've seen God kind of shift our, our hearts to, uh, to talk about what he loves, and now he gives us the other commandment of honor and father uh, and mother. So he's, the first four commandments, uh, one God, uh, no idols, like respecting God's name, right, honoring the Sabbath day, those are all focused on God, and then he kind of moves over now to the sense of like, to love me is to love other people, which now actually makes sense when I think of the greatest commandments, being God and people, because that's what it actually does in the Ten Commandments, is God and people. So now he's focused on what does it mean to, to love people? And he begins, which is, which is so cool, he begins this concept of loving people in verse 12 with honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Right? Now, this whole concept, I mean, I, I think this, is, this was convicting for me because notice that he doesn't say, honor your father mother if they were awesome parents, right? Because, right, because I, you know, I didn't have the, I mean, my parents, they weren't the greatest parents, but they did what they could do, you know what I'm saying? They, and, and guess what? Even though I see a lot of their faults, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for me to be standing here, they had to do a lot, right? Because if you have a baby... You know, that baby needs to be taken care of, fed, you know, wiped, bathed, you know. Uh, And so I feel like even even as I think of the brokenness of my family, I got to pause and remember that, man, my mom and dad nurtured me to at least become a productive member of society, you know. But even if they hadn't done that, God says, honor your father and mother. And notice he says that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God has given you. I think there's a couple reasons why he says this. Um, first, I think it's humbling, the fact, have you thought about this, parents, the people you guys want to be parents one day? That the role you have, one of the primary roles you have when you have a family, this is humbling. Your role is to represent God to your children. Have you thought about that? We want to have kids. That your role is to say, well, my kids, if, if my kids were to grow up and say, who is Jesus? What is God like? How does God act? What does God love? How does God serve? They're supposed to learn that from you. They, they're getting those cues from how God interacts with the world from their mommy and daddy. And then think about that. It's it's a beautiful thing, but it's also extremely humbling, right? When you think, if you are raising your kids and all they see is you being grumpy, right? All they see is you being a blame shifter. All they see is you talking about other people. All they see is you not spending time nurturing and developing your wife-men. Not caring and providing words of affirmation to your wife-men. They see you never in your Bible. They you never lead in prayer, and then we and then kids are 16, 17 years old, and we think, but but no, I you know I was I, I was I was faithful to my wife, and but man, we didn't teach them what it mean? Who who is God? We didn't teach them that man that man like I'm broken, and we didn't do did we point them like when you sin, do you point them to how broken you are, by how perfect God is? Do you even show them in that desire of them learning about God that you're flawed and now you want to keep showing them the perfecter? This is a beautiful thing. So just to think of that fact that the awesome role of we we represent God to our children, that people see Christ through you. I think an implicator, uh, uh, implication here, and I'm pretty, uh, theologians believe this, that one of the main reasons why he says this, days may be long in the land your God is giving you, and know this a lot of information, you've got to keep flowing, you know, i got to get through the Ten Commandments, it's two, there's two main reasons here, um, first, um, because there's an the implication that he's assuming in, in antiquity that the kids eventually will take care of the parents, and so this whole sense of land, your, your days will be long, it's this, it's this idiom of, hey, your, your parents are going to get old. They took care of you. They're going to get old. But you're going to need to honor them. And one of the main ways you honor them is taking care of them at their old age. So this was an assumption in antiquity, right? But also the assumption here... It's, it's, it's not that God is going to do something to you or not do something to you based on how you treat your parents. That, that's not what's happening here. But he's really talking, again, about community flourishing. Is that your days will be long on the earth because, actually, the earth will continue to exist and community will continue to flourish if you're honoring your parents. Is that if you, if you, if a society, and you see this in Isaiah, it talks about this in Isaiah, is that when a society no longer respects the elders and is no longer caring for the elders and the the parents, it tells you that when the son is taking over and and the kids are running things, that the society in itself is denigrated. It gets destroyed. And I know a lot of our young people, you think you're awesome, but you would destroy this world without getting insight from older people. You really will mess it up. And we are messing it up. I mean, it's interesting. You think about how young CEOs are now and how everything's getting kind of younger. And as things are getting younger, things are getting a little more like flamboyant and crazy. You know what I'm saying? I'm telling you, it's loosey-goosey now. And I know we don't like to hear that because a lot of us are young in here. But man, pay heed to that. So... So I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm asking the Lord, Lord, give me ways of how to honor my mommy and daddy, how I can care for them right now um, as you've convicted my heart, you know? The says to man, no murder. So you can, so it says almost, you must not murder. <laughs> this is uh, obviously a controversial topic. I know you guys are going crazy on this one, so see how I'm going to say this. I'm sharing with you my conviction that I think is theologically accurate. Um, I have friends who are pacifists. I think they're wrong, but I love their hearts for Jesus. Um, this is a controversial topic, and there's um, there's many different frames here. The commandment expressed uh, here is equivalent to never murder, and I think the NIV really gets it wrong uh, because it makes it kind it kind of sounds like. Not the sense of like, uh, this whole sense of kill. I think that really messes things up. It's never murder. Now, let me try to break down something real quick. Um, the term in antiquity means, is to specifically put to, put to death someone improperly for selfish reasons rather than authorization. All right? Let me say that again. To, to to put someone to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than authorization um, authorization what do you mean what I'm saying is that God clearly uh, authorizes the Israelites on countless occasions in our canon to kill people uh, and then what he does in the New Testament is that authorization is actually placed on governments and powers that be. So what I want to propose is now you might say some governments are bad and they kill people in an, in a, in an inappropriate way. I would agree with you. Um, that's another discussion and I think they will answer the guy for that. However, I want to propose if a person, I would say if a person is in the United States and as the laws have said, here is an authorized way where you are able to use force, which there are not many in our country as an individual, as a, as a civilian, but that if you did, I would propose that you are operating in light of this commandment. Um, so no Israelite acting on his own could decide, though, that he had the right to end someone's life, right? No one could be a rogue person out here doing his own thing. Uh, But it was based on the declaration of war, based on the authorization of Yahweh. Does that make sense? Um, So the individual believer, uh, if you're not authorized, you had no privatized way of ending life. No one has the right in themselves to end human life. I think we're cool with that. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 14, adultery, talking about marital fidelity. What are we saying there? To be clear, no one is allowed to have sex with any married person except his or her spouse. And... No married person is allowed to have sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. That's what is meant here. Now, adultery was interesting as we talk about community flourishing. Adultery was actually known as uh, the great sin in the ancient world, which is interesting because, you know, you didn't have a lot of Christians, but even, even pagans was like, man, you jacked up, man, if you're doing adultery, Right? Now we we can argue about polygamy in a moment. That's a whole other issue. But adultery, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Move on. Um, why is it a, why is it a great the, the great sin? Because societies God has given you and me, guys, the common grace. Again, unbelievers have the common grace of understanding that marriage is foundational to the creation order and human society. That, that, that marriage itself is, is, is needed in order to build the fabric of a healthy community. The, the, the unbelievers got that. And that is hard. It's absolutely difficult to function at, as, as one flesh, right, if you don't trust each other. How are you going to be one? How are you going to believe the best? How are you going to be deference? if you don't trust each other? So this whole concept of sexual relations, you see it in Corinthians, man, when someone, when someone betrays that, that emotionally, physiologically, psychologically, intimacy is broken. Which connects men and women in marriage. So when you have that, you obviously have the implication, not saying it here, the implication is that, you know, it's against divorce. <laughs> you well, know, Jesus makes, makes that clear later, but obviously... Totally against divorce here. Um, I move on. That's a lot. Let me keep rolling. Verse fifteen says, "You shall not steal." So here's God; He's working them down. Boom, boom, boom. You shall not steal. We get this now. Now let me. You know, here we are. We're in a community. People want to be a community. We want to love and share and have all things in common. Acts two you know, 40, 42. Stealing is taking something that does not belong to you without permission, right? Um, And can we be honest? Like, you cannot have the concept of stealing even be a reality if we don't acknowledge that some stuff belongs to me and it doesn't belong to you. Can we acknowledge that? So when people have this thing like, you know, we just go all, it's all here. Is everybody this shit? That's cute. But at some point, it gets weird right? You know, I walk in, you know, you got on my pants, you know what I'm saying? And you know, I don't want to say nothing, but man, can I get my pants back? You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, we had some bread, now we ain't got no bread. Where's my bread at? was, Fred ate it. Man, bread, I was hungry. You know what I'm saying? There, there seems, there seems, you know, the reality is, you know, a flourishing community has to establish possessions, and although we want to be kind and giving, there's things that are yours and they're not mine. There's things that are mine, they're not yours, and that we choose in community to let people partake. But we still have to draw a line and know, well, hey, this is mine, this is yours. That's just fair, right, family? So just want to make sure we, understand we have a healthy sense of community and, commun- and, and a healthy sense of communal society, right? That having all things together in common, even in Acts, they, some stuff was theirs and some stuff was not theirs. <laughs> and they knew it. Um, and again, the reason why it's important is because stealing, as it were, it affects the social order again. That's what I'm saying. So the proverb shows you that there's wisdom in, in, in this God's thinking. Like these are commands, but he, he's giving us these commands because it's like, this actually is going to help you guys have a healthy life in community. Is that if you don't have a framework of don't steal now you kind of like it just threatens right it just threatens the this, this social order and it causes pain to people because now you took my stuff and what do I do with that and it is yeah it, it gives you it's an undermining sense actually of, of, of the things you can possess like why even try to have stuff when everybody can take it at any whim right I lose my ambition you know um, but at the end of the day the food thief makes other people go hungry you know uh, you work, you get animals, and, they enter, and you take my animal, and I can't farm anymore. <laughs> so, you're not still. Finally, it says, um, the ninth commandment, uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? So, this is a um, a, a, law, a law term that he's given us here. This sense of false witness, Right? Where the false testimony appears to be kind of saying, includes like you have impertinent information at a, at a, at a trial or a hearing, uh, and then you create a false impression of what the facts really are, right? That's the concept here. Um, and I love here is one of the first, is one of the first times, um, it's is actually the first commandment family where the Lord allows us to hear this term neighbor here. There's a certain kind of term that's used when Jesus talks about neighboring with the, with the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan, right? right. And a, the whole concept here is your neighbor is not the person that's next door to you, but your neighbor is human society, right? That there's a robust anthropology to this concept of neighbor. And he's basically saying, um, do not lie against people, <laughs> right? So even in our house, you know, one of the things that you automatically get a spanking for is lying so we'll give you grace in a lot of other areas and we have a little grace bucket you know every once in a while they pull it out and get grace but there's no grace bucket in the russ family for lying right because it is it's it's catastrophic to paint a certain narrative in a person and to put them in harm's way absolutely catastrophic for community He ends with this sense of coveting. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, what is coveting? A couple things we want to clear up right now, okay? First, coveting is desiring, wanting, or craving something, right? Okay? Now it's interesting here, question I wanna ask, is coveting bad? Because I wonder if we think coveting's bad. But I don't think that's actually what the text is saying. It says, you shall not covet, and it gives you descriptions of things you shall not covet. May I propose to you that I think what he's saying is there actually can be a healthy way of having desires and things you want. Y'all looking at me like, what? I want to propose that the point here is nothing properly owned by someone else should be coveted. You hear me? You don't, shouldn't want other people's stuff. Their wife, their, their servants, their donkey, right? Anything that's your neighbors. I mean, think about it. If, it would make no sense if, if uh, you couldn't covet anything, right? Because you just kind of just... But man, it's, there's a healthy sense. I think that, that, that what we as Christians, we should be like, oh, there's some things that I, I, really, will, I really want and I really desire. And it actually, I think it frees us up to go, that's actually not a bad thing. As long as your coveting and your desire for it isn't greater than Christ. <laughs> But, but the word in itself, I think, has gotten uh, taboo, where we think the word covet is bad. And I want to propose that it seems to me here, coveting people's stuff um, is what the issue is. Oh, that was a lot. And the reason why I want to propose, the reason why I want to propose in this text here, that he says... Don't covet, and he gives these he gives the clear frameworks of what not to covet. I want to propose is because it's kind of the beginning stages of a thief. Right? And and so if you ever spend time in your MAC group, you will see how one of the commandments will kind of be could be almost a starting point to entering into disrupting another commandment. And here, I want to propose that, yeah, you know, first you want something that don't belong to you. And then you take it, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, in a, in a myriad of ways. And so, here's the Lord saying, "Don't, do not covet." All right.